Welcome to the PR Resolution Podcast. I'm your host, Stella Bales. In this podcast series, I'll be interviewing experts in emerging areas of PR. We'll be taking those hot topics in public relations, dispelling any myths, breaking down the jargon, so you are completely clued up and ready to speak to your stakeholders by the time you reach the office. If you have any questions around the episode, please feel free to tweet me at Stella Bales. In this episode, I interview former New York Daily News Editor-in-Chief Jim Rich on his career in the news industry and now his journey to be working with PR teams more. In 2016, Jim was named one of the most powerful people in New York media. That was by The Hollywood Reporter. And I can see why they said it. His knowledge and experience in news generation is fascinating. He's seen that industry massively change over the last few years though, with new competitors in publishing, news team restructures, journalist layoffs, and also completely new responsibilities for journalists too. He talks to me about these changes from the publishing point of view, but also how it affects public relations. We talk about new competitors with social platforms now competing with publishers over audience and traffic. We talk about how important the reach of a story is. And also, interestingly, how it's not just the PR teams looking at success metrics in the stories too. Jim has built teams of journalists over the years to spot and call out BS, as he calls it. So you'll hear he's refreshingly straight talking, but not just about the news industry, also how PRs can work with journalists too. Essentially, if news is part of your PR strategy this year, then this episode is a must listen. Here's Jim. Hi, Jim. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, So you've recently left the Daily News? Yes, I left the Daily News in the end of July, actually. So it's been a little while. Uh, And you were editor-in-chief, I was. Correct, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your role that you were doing there? I was there for my second stint as editor-in-chief. I had been editor-in-chief previously, uh, 2015 to 2016. um, Had left there and had gone to HuffPost for about... Uh, seven months or so, and then um, new ownership of the Daily News uh, called me up and, and brought me back as as editor in January of 2017. You're now, you've been in news and journalism for many years with a lot of an amazing experience, but you are now starting to work with brands, is that right? Yeah, well, I'm working as editor at large for uh, SWNS and 72 Point. So yeah, so it's a bit of a, a, a straddle, a leg in each in each world. Uh, one still remaining in in the news world, and the other um, more on the brand side with the with the seventy two point sort of uh, content and, and the work that they do there. For the listeners who aren't aware of SWNS Media Group and seventy two point, um, I actually worked with them both in London and in New York when I was PR side, and they. Um, an organisation that have really close relationships with the news teams on all of the major publishers in the UK and the US. And they help brand teams in-house and agencies sort of form really quality news stories. So um, I guess it fits really well with uh, Jim being able to move over with your kind of experience. But for you personally, what was it that made you want to start to work with brands more, having been so long in sort of the journalism game? But to, be, to be honest, it's not something that I had actively thought about or set out to do. It was an opportunity that, that came up over the past couple of months. I had some conversations with, with Tim Haslam, who runs the, the U.S. arm of things for the company, and it seemed like a, a pretty decent fit for me and a, and, a, and a decent opportunity to do something that I hadn't really 
done too much of in the past. Have you started the work yet? Have you started to sort of form strategies or help these brand teams yet? It's very, very early on. Um, I think I started just before the holidays and January has really been getting my bearings and getting my feet under the table, so to speak. So I think we'll start seeing some more detailed sort of interactions probably in the in the coming month or so. How have you seen um, the news industry, so specifically in New York and America, change in the last few years? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think that the biggest change has been, uh, you know, the, there's this idea that, and I think it's true in many, in many ways, that there has never been more media than there is right now uh, and, and more outlets. And again, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I, but I think that that's, that perception is probably somewhat true. The catch to that is, is that there are more outlets who are, do, are doing fewer things and covering fewer topics for the most part. So you, you take a place like the, the Daily News, for instance, which now is, is, you know, its staff has been reduced over the past few years by probably close to 70 or 80%. So there was a time when a Metro Daily such as that would have very vibrant business sections, uh, features sections, lifestyle sections, sports sections. And that has all really been reduced to a bare minimum. And so how does that relate to, to brands or to PR? Well, those pitches that were once being sent out were being viewed by many, many more editors and journalists in general who had a much wider range of coverage interests. Now that's not quite the case. And so it's a bit of good news, bad news sort of situation. There are, there are more outlets, if, at least it, it seems that way, but I, I would argue that there's less of a breadth of coverage among those outlets. With that reduction in people um, and actual you know, journalists generating those stories, the frequency of stories going out has increased, seeing news on social media, but you're saying that there's actually less journalists. How did you balance that? Well, I think, that's, I think both of those things are true. I think there is a undoubtedly a greater frequency and volume as it relates to the frequency of stories that are being generated. Again, they're really about breaking news, what's happening this moment as it's unfolding. And, and as far as that's concerned, that part of the news industry has never been in a greater position. But the thing is this, all of those outlets that have improved their speed to such an incredible degree, that again, limits how many other sorts of, of stories and journalism they can do, because there's so many of the resources that are, are dedicated to being the first or among the first to get a story up about topic X as it is actually unfolding. It's a bit of an illusion that, you know, oh, there's more. Because yeah, there kind of is within a very narrow sort of um, context, but it's narrow. And that to me is the, is, the, is the key word. It's all about breaking news as it's happening. Not a lot of places have the capability or the resources to go deeper or, or farther afield when it comes to topic selection. Is there still a place for deeper research features with online news? I know that when, um, going quite far back now, when I was, I'd have a different sort of strategy for sending into sort of those weekend paper supplements for those bigger right. features in comparison to a news selling. Is there still a place for that with our online media consumption? There is. And, you know, we could name the, the obvious, you know, there's still the New York Times, there's still the Washington Post, there's still the Wall 
Wall Street Journal, the LA Times, which is expanding, which is which is reversing field from the rest of the industry at, at this moment. There's still a, a handful of glossies who are doing significant work. But whatever that number of publications that's still doing that sort of work or trying to do that sort of work is, take that and then add to it almost every significant metro daily newspaper. And that's what you used to have because all of those dailies were in that game of doing more expansive, more nuanced, more far-reaching and unique journalism. I'm only talking about going back 10 years. So that's what's, that's what's been lost. That's, that's what's been reduced. And that's what's made both ends of this equation, both you know, pitching to these places, find, identifying who it is that actually would be interested in those sort of pitches, and then also the places themselves and dealing with the limits of trying to find resources or to take where to take resources from in order to dedicate to what has become a, a dying sort of form of, of the business and of journalism. How would brand and PR people navigate who's best to work with if they're working in a particular vertical now? I would say that that's probably uh, more challenging also simply because titles have changed um, and the titles don't always immediately reflect exactly what area of expertise that person might possess or or oversee. The sports editor position at the Daily News, for instance, uh, within the last month was just eliminated and was replaced by a position whose title was something like audience development for sports and blah, blah, blah. And it was it was a mouthful and a half. And I'm exaggerating to an extent because whatever the actual title was, sure, you could figure out that that's the person you'd want to reach out to about sports related issues and stories. But that's one person now overseeing that one area where in the past, or again, let's go back 10 years ago, there probably would have been a sports editor, a deputy sports editor, a Sunday sports editor, a deputy Sunday sports editor, and then maybe one other mid to upper level management person in that department who you would want to get in front of with your ideas. And out of those six or seven people, maybe all but one of them would not respond to your pitch, but one of them might. Now you're basically, you're shooting at one target and that person is being inundated by every one of those pitches that were being sent out to six or seven people 10 years ago, now are all going to one person. And they just do, they do not have the bandwidth anymore because they're also overseeing a department that has probably 10 people in it now, as opposed to in the past, 35, right? So it's all what used to be spread out among many people has really been come, come down to the responsibility of one or two. I've seen that here just in the last month or so working on this end and trying to communicate with newsrooms from here. And, it's, and I, I've, I've seen it happen. I knew that it is, this existed, but to see this phenomenon from the outside looking in has been sort of eye-opening. You mentioned that the job title had changed and that sort of just struck me a little. With the job title changing for a, let's keep the sports editor mm-hmm. example, does that come along with new responsibilities? Are they looking at a, a bigger breadth of work than just deciding which stories should be written about? I've seen this happen not only at the news uh, with the sports editor's position, but with at other outlets, with other, whether it be lifestyle or feature or, or business. Rightfully so, there is a, a more of a need and a focus on 
audience and engagement. And to an extent, that has always been the case or should have been the case when it comes to journalism and the production of journalism. It feels as if because of the desperation uh, on the financial end for so many of these uh, companies and newsrooms, and, and again, as we speak today and yesterday, the announce, there's been announcements of BuzzFeed, HuffPost, Yahoo, all the Gannett papers, all having another round of significant layoffs. Uh, so that feeds into this heightened sense of leading with the metrics as opposed to leading with the journalism. And I, I, I walk a very fine line on this because I don't, I try not to sound like a, an old, you know, wistful curmudgeon who, who longs for the old days of leading with the, the journalism and who cares about the numbers because that's BS. I mean, we've always cared about numbers in this industry. Uh, and if you didn't, you, you failed because it, it's about getting as many readers as you, as you possibly can. But it feels like the financial burden has swung that pendulum too far to one side. Uh, I'm hopeful because I think we have to be that it will swing back to some more reasonable spot. But at this moment, it's making it's making journalism more difficult and it's making interacting with journalists and, and newsrooms more difficult. When we're talking about numbers and the financial pendulum, is that related to uh, traffic targets and linked to advertising or am I making an assumption there? No, I, I mean, I think that's that's the, the 30,000 foot sort of explanation of it. I, I th- when you when you drill down into it, it's it's a quagmire that that has parts of it is the fact that, you know, behemoths such as Facebook and Google are swallowing up 60 to 80 percent of all digital advertising, which is not only bad for news organizations, but bad for many other peripheral organizations as well who rely on uh, digital um, ad revenue. There's been mismanagement over the years. There's now hedge fund companies that are that are coming in and just looking to pick whatever meat is left off of any of the bones. And so you put that all into one cauldron and you've got this perfect brew that we're all sort of sitting in right now. I don't think that there's one smoking gun sort of solution or cause to any of it, but it is, it is a moment that is, and I, and I hate this again, I sound like I, the old man waving his cane at the, at the clouds, but it is, it is, it does feel dire. It does, it does feel somewhat dire at this moment. Do editors of different areas or, you know, writers of different areas have sort of specific targets of like bringing in readers to particular parts of the, of the site or is it sort of as a whole? Who has that sort of responsibility? It feels like quite a big responsibility and not just sort of writing stories. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that really depends uh, newsroom to newsroom. There are some that are more very specific as far as the demands and the requirements from specific writers and editors and departments. There are others where, when I was editor at the Daily News, for instance, and even my time at HuffPost as executive editor, there it was it was more spread out, and there was more of this um, plan of okay, here are the the sections, and here are the types of stories and content that we're going to do that we expect to keep all the other boats afloat, and that we know will will generate a more consistent or specific type of, of audience or traffic. And, but, but then we would, we would carve out um, areas where we would take a little more time and do a little more in-depth and something a little bit more interesting maybe is the word or 
or complex as far as the journalism was concerned. Those were not exempt from uh, audience or traffic figures or, you know, if, if a story doesn't do well, you, you know, there's something wrong. It means you haven't, it means you haven't done the story well, or you didn't choose wisely enough in picking the story topic. What does success look like for a story? I think it depends on the type of story. If it's a breaking news story, uh, you're looking at sheer volume and, and numbers. Uh, how many, literally just to put it bluntly, how many clicks? If you're talking about an investigation, maybe the metric is, again, it, part of it will be how many people read it, but it could also mean, did you win an award for it? Did you change government policy because of it for the better? Did you improve people's lives? And then there's somewhere in between where it'll be a little bit of both, or it just might be, did you get you know, good media coverage or pickup or sharing uh, you know, from your readers on social media? Uh, did you make people, were they laughing about it? Would you make people think? So if you're doing it, if you're doing it right and you have the, the luxury of doing it right, which it really is a luxury at this point because so many, I just can't, I can't stress this enough, so many places would love to have the luxury of being able to have that full array of metrics at their disposal as, how, as to how they gauge or judge their, their work. But if you have that luxury, then it's really... It really can be any or all of those of those things. PR measurement um, is a topic that is huge in the PR industry, right. and I've now, with my travel, realised that it's a huge um, ongoing topic and debate. No matter what country you're in, there's a lot of work that goes into different metrics and custom them in different ways. But there's also lots of people who are now employed solely in PR just to look at that. Do you have teams on the publishing side that will be looking at those kind of success metrics? Yeah, I mean, m- most most newsrooms at this point have an audience team with whose job is to to set those in conjunction with the with the editorial with the editors um, set those those standards or, or those those goals and what those what those metrics and measurements mean or should mean for places that don't have full-blown audience teams then you have your social media teams which act sort of as that de facto uh, unit you know the interesting thing about about all of this, what does one metric mean as opposed to the other? My first time around at the Daily News as editor-in-chief, one of the, one of the things that we did there that was our most successful was, was one that garnered us almost no traffic, so to speak. Okay. So we would, you know, we would do our front page every day. And our, and our front page, of course, is a print product, but we would share the front page on social media, Twitter and Facebook. And inevitably, when they were when those tabloid front pages were were clever or or or, or hard hitting or just a, a really interesting, maybe even sometimes controversial, they would be shared like crazy all over the globe. Social media then would get picked up on CNN or, or whatever. But when you looked at the, when you looked at the numbers, almost nobody clicked. We would we would tweet out or or post on Facebook with a link to the story attached to you know the front page headline. And almost nobody would click on that link. So from an audience, from a, from a metric standpoint, you look at that and go, oh, that's a failure. So why are you doing it? But then you look at the value that we got from, as a brand for the attention and the conversation about the work we were doing that came from that. And that's, that's really sort of immeasurable. 
but its value was 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 so important to us and and almost also immeasurable in a way. That's so interesting to think that there's um, what's that perfect uh, scenario of it gets it needs to be a good enough story for it to be picked up socially, but then the social buzz then helps it become the story, doesn't it? Right, and 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 this is sort of just wearing my journalist hat. This is sort of a sacrilegious thing to talk about in newsrooms it's because it's it really does start crossing over into like the brand recognition and and the, and the sort of conversations that I know brands have about you know yes there there can be x number of people this is what this is what newspapers promised advertisers forever was well you're going to have 3 million eyeballs on this store on this ad you know sitting next to this story which to be honest was probably a load of crap you know but it didn't really matter at the end of the day because you were getting the value of being in that space, whatever that is, right? That intangible thing. And so from a news standpoint, that also can apply. I go back to what I just said earlier, which is I appreciate the role that metrics and analytics plays in the news business and then also in the PR business. But I think there's a very slippery slope there where you can get caught being led by something that's not necessarily a true reflection of, of reality. On that, how much um, of this do you think public relations professionals who are, who are selling into uh, news teams, like your old team, should be considering this kind of thing? So, for example, should they be thinking about the elements of the story they're selling in? Should there be shareable elements that are going to be part of that? Or should they just be thinking about the story and, and like the headline they're trying to push? Well, I'll answer that this way. As an editor or a reporter, whenever I was, I received a PR pitch, the, my starting point was, I don't give a crap about your product. I don't. I care about, I might care about the story surrounding your product or behind your product, but I, I don't care about the product. I just don't. And, and, and that is almost unanimous for every journalist I've ever met. So if you're going to spend any energy, it's on identifying what, act, what the good story is attached to the product and leading with that, I know so many people in, in the PR world already do that and have been trying to do that and with mixed success because there is also a fatigue aspect to this that, as I said, has only gotten worse as fewer and as the pool of people who have been able to be targeted with these pitches has shrunk. And so it's increased for, for the editors who are left. And they just they just their eyes glaze over and it's, it becomes an auto delete when when they don't recognize or, or when they say, oh, this is a PR pitch. I'm not even going to look at it. Right. That's a real challenge. But I, I have definitely done stories or assigned stories that started from a PR pitch. One hundred percent. They were they were few and far between. But there were some that were like, oh, this is this is interesting. This came across my email like a news pitch to me, not like a PR pitch. It wasn't the mention of the product at the top. It was just the, the angle. As well, you've got to be careful with that too, because there is a niche of PR folks who were almost too cute about that. And again, the, 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 thing, about, the thing about journalists is they are paid. Their expertise at the end of the day, if they're good, is to root out BS within seconds of it coming across their radar. So if I see that you're trying to if you're writing the pitch in a way and too strained of a way that's trying too hard to be a news pitch, that also is going to get picked up on pretty quickly. 
I'm listening to myself describe this and I'm like, Jesus Christ, that is really an impossible situation. <laughs> and I get that it is, but, but it, unfortunately it is the reality. And, and the folks that, that managed to find that sweet spot in between those two do not do this sort of polls, you know, are, are going to have, are still going to have some success because journalists and editors are always going to be interested in a good story no matter where it's coming from. Again, I'm going back to a while ago, but it used to be slightly easier when there were those, uh, as you said, there was more levels or more, you know, sub-editors and just uh, more journalists within those different departments. Um, and then you'd build the relationship and form the story together almost, you know, just fly an idea. But I guess it's a little bit more challenging if there's just that one person, you can't form that deeper relationship with them. Or in addition to that, those people that you're talking about in the past had an obligation to fill X number of pages or space each day or week, which has also gone away or been reduced to an unrecognizable amount. Also, there's no shortage, as, as funny as this, or as contradictory as this might seem, there's, there's no shortage of, of stories out there for the remaining journalists because, because of the internet. Every news outlet by default becomes a source of stories for other news outlets. So they become wire services of their own. Uh, again, we had an entire desk at the Daily News and Huffington Post um, dedicated to this sort of work, which is, and this was usually a breaking news desk, which was monitoring every website that, every news website there was. And when there was interesting news, we either picked up on it and rewrote it, or we went and we did further reporting and to do our own story on it. So there's no shortage right now of places for these editors to find good stories. You don't have a slow news day anymore. There is no such thing as that. There just isn't. No, no matter what. I mean, and we could talk about the current political um, climate contributing to that, but but putting that aside, uh, there's still, even even before this current political climate, there still was never a slow news day. Really interesting to hear that you've got teams monitoring those sort of different news sources. Something that's just popped into my head was that we often hear in... PR that um, when we're setting strategies that anyone can be a publisher these days, um, whether that be uh, an influencer on a social media platform or even um, brands now um, trying to become publishers. And we've seen some successes in that. But I find that really interesting because, it, again, it's a big change from there being sort of a brand side trying to sell into news publishers. Now there's a bit more of a, this sort of grey area. What's your view on that? that sort of anyone being able to publish? Uh, it's sort of two, I have a twofold sort of answer to that. One, one is I think initially that whole concept was one, one of several that, that were pushed by the social media outlets themselves in a self-serving sort of way. Because if everybody's a publisher, then everybody's publishing on their platform. And that's, as we've seen, that's good for those platforms because they're getting free content and they, which they can then monetize um, and, and make oodles of profits. Okay, so fine. So, so be wary of that right away. Uh, who, who is it that's, who's declaring that everyone can be a publisher? Um, we also were led to believe that video was the, the, the wave of the future and that millennials and generations beyond millennials will only want to consume news and content in video form they won't want to read. 
we've since found out that that's not necessarily true. And again, when you look at why was that pushed as a, as a gospel, well, you follow the money and the money led to, again, the platforms where the videos were going to be residing. Uh, now, with all that said, I do think that the second part of this is on the brand side, when you have credibility, transparency, and the perception at least, but I think it's got to go beyond perception. I think it's got to be legit of legitimately being invested in the content that you are publishing and producing or that your brand is attached to. I think that that can be um, successful. And I think that that could actually, you know, there can be decent uh, or just decent, you know, good content, uh, news, you know, features, whatever it is that gets produced and that people will actually want to consume. Just thinking about my sort of personal news consumption and reading, I know that Red Bull, for example, is a brand that I probably wouldn't buy their products, honestly. Sorry, Red Bull. But I absolutely love reading their the the content that they produce, listening to the the podcasts that they produce. And so they're then I I see them as a brand and like as a publisher, they've they've been really successful. It's interesting to see how different ones, different brands are using this. This isn't exactly, you know, a complete parallel, but it's a version of what's always been, you know, sponsored content. I mean, all content has been sponsored in the past it, it, th- when you're when you're doing it through the traditional advertising model, uh, which again, which is I go back to earlier what I said about the bill of goods that most advertisers were sold by the newspaper industry when before the Internet is pretty well documented. But while that specific value was never what it was, what it was trumped up to be. Name, you know, branding of, of being associated with a particular, you know, publication and its work was legitimate. And I think that that's what places like Red Bull now, if you're going to do produce good work and you're not going to be leading with the product, well, there's a payoff for that. Right. I, and, I, and again, I think consumers and I, I will readers or however you want to quantify or, or, or identify uh, people who who consume news, they are also smart, and they also have pretty good BS detectors, and they know when they're when they're having the wool pulled over their eyes. So if you're not doing that, they also will identify that, and they appreciate it. You've got so much insight from your experiences of working at HuffPost and the Daily News, but also working through some of these changes. If I was still brand side, I'd want to be working with you. Um, so are you? You're working with SWNS Media Group right now, and there is the opportunity for brands to be working with them. Is that right? Or is it PR teams? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I said, we're in, I'm in the early stages here uh, as far as the specifics of, of what my interactions are going to be. But um, talking with Nikki and Tim uh, and, and we're mapping out a, a plan as we as we speak. Just before we leave this this interview, it's been so fascinating, so thank you. But looking at your time at the Daily News, you had some um, amazing achievements from bringing in news stories and from an investigative uh, way and uh, and making big changes right through to sort of growing the audience. For you, what was your, your sort of biggest sort of high that you had um, at the Daily News or even any sort of previous positions? I, I think that was also sort of two, a two-pronged thing. I mean... The obvious one was, you know, we won a Pulitzer Prize for for 
public service journalism in a partnership we had with ProPublica. And when I took over as editor-in-chief in in the fall of 2015, my goal was to establish the Daily News as a feisty tabloid that took no prisoners and called BS wherever BS existed and to raise our, our sort of our brand as a, as a news organization in that sense. And we did, we, we, we totally did that. And so I, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of that. Uh, but I also wanted us to be taken seriously as a, as a journalistic entity um, as far as our hard hitting investigative, changing society for the better sort of work. And the, the, there's no greater, there's no greater acknowledgement of that than, than winning a Pulitzer. So um, I think both of those things happen simul- you know, simultaneously. Uh, and there are a lot of really hardworking, talented journalists uh, who were there at the time who, who helped make it happen, uh, who, who made it happen, actually. Uh, and so when I look back on that, I, I think, well, you know what? In the middle of what is truly, when we look back in history, is going to be viewed as a one of the greatest crisis moments in in journalism uh we were we managed to find a way to 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 do some pretty great things what an amazing achievement jim thank you so much for your time i've thoroughly enjoyed this interview can't wait for other people in the industry to hear it and really excited to actually see your journey and um and helping some prs connect better with the news industry as it is right now thank you very much great thanks for having me This is the PR Resolution Podcast. Keep in touch by following me on Twitter, at Stella Bales. For more reading on PR, head to blog.coveragebook.com. Don't forget to tune in to the next episode and make sure you subscribe to the series on iTunes now. See you there.